from Podcast One. This is a Target USA special report. The anatomy of a Russian attack on the U.S. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The U.S. intelligence community has concluded Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered operatives to interfere in the U.S. 2016 presidential election. A Target USA investigation that began in November of 2016 examined how the attack happened, when it started, who was involved, and what lay ahead. We conducted dozens of interviews in the U.S. and abroad with current and former U.S. intelligence officials, members of Congress, cybersecurity, and intelligence experts, foreign government officials, Russian nationals, and American victims. This is part one of our series, Anatomy of a Russian Attack on the U.S. At about 8.30 a.m. on September 11, 2014, the Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness in St. Mary Parish, Louisiana, began getting phone calls from concerned citizens about a disturbing message they'd received. Well, we started getting phone calls in regards to a message that came out. It says, toxic fumes hazard warning in this area and it gives the time 1 30 p.m duval arthur jr is director of the office of homeland security and emergency preparedness and he was on duty at the time and recalls the message that came in take shelter check local media and, and then it has the name of a company columbia chemical company alerts C-O-L-U-M-B-I-A chemical.com. That's the, the name that was on the alert. Where did you get the message? Where did that alert come from? Oh, well, it didn't come to us, but we, we started getting it from residents that live in the uh, an area of the parish that's not too far away from the plant. So they saw, they saw this online or on their phones or? On their phones. They, these were text messages. And uh, it was sent from a telephone number, which I'll give you, 646-586-5960. That was the telephone number of the text. And it went out to several people. We had phone calls from people while we were making phone calls, so we really didn't get a chance to get everybody's name. We do have the name of a couple people that that we were able to get the screenshots from. Mm Mm-hmm. And they call in complaints. What did they say? Just said that what should they do? Is this legitimate? By that time, the internet was blowing up with details about the alert. On Twitter, 
A screenshot was circulated of the New Orleans Times-Picayune website, which depicted an article about the explosion. At one point, an image of CNN's website turned up on Twitter with a photograph of the explosion. A Wikipedia user created a page describing the explosion. A public Facebook page titled Louisiana News posted an article describing the event. Even a video appeared on YouTube that appeared to be news footage of ISIS claiming responsibility for the attack. All of this was taking place while near panic started to set in in St. Mary Parish and all up and down the east coast of the U.S. And while it was happening, Duval Arthur got on the phone and he called Columbia Chemicals to ask what was going on and they sent him a statement. September 11, 2014. It says, we have been informed by the community that a text message has been received by several individuals indicating a release of toxic gas from the Birla, it's B-I-R-L-A, Birla Carbons Colombian Chemicals, and it's Colombian instead of Columbia, okay? Mm-hmm. Colombian Chemicals Plant near Centerville, Louisiana. The content, as stated by the text, is not true. There has been no release of such toxic gas, explosion, or any other incident at our facility. We are not aware of the origin of this text message. Law enforcement authorities have been contacted and are following up on this matter. And that is when the real panic began to set in. The realization that all of it had been a hoax of epic proportions. The spoofed websites, the faked screenshots of CNN and other newspapers and broadcasters, even the video showing a man watching TV, all of it was elaborately staged and executed. Then, the question was, who did it? We asked Duval Arthur that question. So, when did you find out what was behind the hoax? Who was behind the hoax? Well, I've never found out who was behind it. I was told that it was the Russians, but I have no I, I have no information on that, none whatsoever. Did, did you see the story that Adrian Chen wrote in the New York Times where you were quoted? I, I, I heard about it. I, um, I never saw it. But I assure you that I don't know that the Russians or anybody else did this, okay? okay. I, I couldn't tell you. We spoke to the FBI in Louisiana about it as well. We were told they'd get back to us. So far, we haven't heard anything yet. As we dug further into the story, we learned that wasn't the only Russian attempt to manipulate the news in the U.S. In late 2014 and throughout 2015, we watched active measures on nearly any disaffected U.S. audience, whether it be claims of the U.S. military declaring martial law during the Jade Helm exercise, chaos amongst Black Lives Matters protests, or a standoff at the Bundy, Bundy Ranch, Russia's state-sponsored outlets of RT and Sputnik News characterized as white outlets, churned out manipulated truths, false news stories, and conspiracies. Clint Watts, a former FBI special agent, currently a fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. He told the Senate Intelligence Committee on March 30th, 2017, 
Russia was very much involved in manipulating the news for their own special purposes. And he talked specifically about how they did it. They generally lined up under four themes. One, political messages designed to tarnish democratic leaders and institutions. Two, financial propaganda created to weaken confidence in financial markets and capitalist economies. Three, social unrest crafted to amplify divisions amongst democratic populaces. And four, global calamity pushed to incite fear of global demise such as nuclear war or catastrophic climate change. So what's at play here is a very sophisticated, coordinated operation to attack the U.S. from inside out in plain sight, without us knowing what was happening. Watts told the Senate how it unfolded from his vantage point. From these overt Russian propaganda outlets, a wide range of English-speaking conspiratorial websites, which we refer to as gray outlets, some of which mysteriously operate from Eastern Europe and are curiously led by pro-Russian editors of unknown financing, sensationalize these conspiracies and fake news published by white outlets. American-looking social media accounts, the hecklers, honeypots, and hackers I described earlier, working alongside automated bots, further amplify this Russian propaganda amongst unwitting Westerners. It's November 13th, 2016. I'm in Sofia, Bulgaria, for NATO's Concept, Development, and Experimentation Conference. One of the critical pieces of information I've learned from a source here at the conference is that next door, in Macedonia, there are no less than 140 English-language fake news outlets. So, questions. Why would there, first of all, be a need to be any fake news outlets there? Second of all, why that many? Thirdly, why English-language? Fourth, who was running them? And fifth, how were they being run? All of those questions I've been looking into seem to point to Russian influence operations targeting America. Back to Washington, March 30th, 2017. Clint Watts seems to have the answers in his testimony. Through the end of 2015 and start of 2016, the Russian influence system began pushing themes and messages seeking to influence the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. Russia's overt media outlets and covert trolls sought to sideline opponents on both sides of the political spectrum with adversarial views towards the Kremlin. They were in full swing during both the Republican and Democratic primary season and may have helped sink the hopes of candidates more hostile to Russian interests long before the field narrowed. Senator Rubio, in my opinion, you anecdotally suffered from these efforts. Florida Senator Marco Rubio, who's on the Senate Intelligence Committee and was indeed present at that hearing after Watts' remarks, explained what he was talking about. In July of 2016, uh, shortly after I announced that I would seek re-election to the United States Senate, former members of my presidential campaign team uh, who had access to the internal information of my presidential campaign were targeted by IP addresses uh, with an unknown location within Russia. That effort was unsuccessful. I'd also informed the committee that within the last 24 hours, uh, at 10.45 a.m. yesterday, uh, a second attempt was made uh, again, against former members of my presidential campaign team who had access to our internal information, again targeted from an IP address from an unknown location in Russia. And that effort was also unsuccessful. In this podcast, we're going to dig down into this and figure out exactly how this Russian Active Measures campaign worked, who was running these websites, 
how they targeted Senator Rubio, and perhaps hundreds if not thousands of American politicians, federal officials, military personnel, journalists, and just regular, hardworking American citizens. We're going to take a short break, but we'll dig down into that when we return to Target USA. The National Security Podcast. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On this program, we're beginning an in-depth look at exactly how the Russian active measures campaign that targeted the 2016 election worked. But first, some perspective on where this approach was born. Classical military means. For that, we turn to David Kilcullen. He's an Australian author, former member of the military in Australia. He's a strategist and counterinsurgency expert who just happens to be very well versed in Russia's strategy and activities. I met up with him in Sofia, Bulgaria, a week after the 2016 presidential election. He was there as a speaker at a NATO conference. He explained when Russia's campaign started and how. I go back to February of 1993 when Jim Woolsey, who was President Clinton's CIA director, was doing his uh, testimony for his confirmation hearing in front of the Senate. And he was asked, how do you see the post-Cold War environment? This is about 18 months after the fall of the Soviet Union. And Woolsey said, we have slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. My argument is that for 10 years, from 1993, actually literally exactly 10 years, from February 1993 to March 2003, we lived in a Woolseyan security environment where we just worried about non-states, failing states and weak states, things like peacekeeping in Bosnia or Rwanda or Somalia. We didn't worry about state adversaries because the Russians were gone from the scene as a major adversary temporarily. After 2003, when President Bush invaded Iraq, we found ourselves massively struggling with a series of non-state actors, and we inadvertently showed all of our potential state adversaries how to fight us, right? Like, if you try to fight the US like it's Desert Storm, you're going to lose. If you, if you try to fight them like it's Iraq, you've got a much better chance. And after about August of 2013, after the failure of the red line in Syria, we now have this resurgence of state threats, but as the states have come back, they're actually operating much more like non-state actors now. So to shorthand it, the dragons are back, but they're operating like snakes. So the two actually have swapped tactics. The- yeah, I wouldn't say they've swapped necessarily, but they've copied each other. So non-state actors are fighting like states, and the classic example of that is ISIS. And I gave a bunch of examples of how they essentially use state-like tactics. And then you have groups like the Russians and the Chinese and others who are drawing in techniques that have typically been used by non-state actors and melding them with their dominant, you know, state-based approach. So I think it's, it's a convergence more than a, like a, a flipping. Basically, Russia, according to Kilcullen, altered its attack strategy after it witnessed the overwhelming U.S. military strength displayed in the invasion of Iraq in 2003. But something else was at play as well. I'm outside the State Department in the Washington area called Foggy Bottom. After the Cold War allegedly ended, the U.S. did something that probably, looking back on it, was a big mistake. It misread Russia's intentions. Robert Booth, 
former deputy director of counterintelligence for diplomatic security here at the State Department, details a shocking incident that lays it all out. In 1991, the fall of the wall, the bear is gone, that we don't have to fear the Russians anymore. And then nine, eight years later, we find the Russians had put a bug inside the State Department in Washington, D.C. I want to talk to you specifically about that, because I'd heard that story. I've read about that story, but I don't know a whole lot about it. How did they do that? Well, in 1991-92, senior members of the State Department felt as though old Russia was gone. A new Russia was emerging. They're friends. We can work with them. And unfortunately, that led to the decision that Russian diplomats who visited the State Department did not have to be escorted when they showed up at the main State Department embassy and that uh, they were allowed to kind of walk around inside the State Department unknown. Think about that for a moment. Where in the world would you, let alone a foreign diplomat, be able to roam around a country's foreign ministry headquarters which is the State Department here in the U.S., alone, unescorted for long periods of time. That's essentially what was going on here at the State Department in the 1990s and may have been the point that the seeds were planted that essentially grew up to be the foundation of what we now know was a Russian attack on the U.S. electoral system in 2016. Now, back to the Russian diplomats roaming around, escort-free in the State Department in the early 90s. Robert Booth was really concerned about it. My office in the FBI was aware of that. In fact, we had an operation in which we monitored diplomats walking around inside the State Department. Uh, we tried to alert our senior members to this situation. Uh, we were somewhat rebuffed. Um, but then all of a sudden, we in the FBI noticed that the Russian diplomats' visits to the State Department all of a sudden stopped, almost ceased to, to exist. And what did that tell you? Well, it became clear later on to us that the operation they had run was over with, that they had successfully introduced a listening device into a conference room in the seventh floor State Department. In a conference room? Yes. Where was the bug, can you say? Yes, it was inside. It was concealed inside a fake piece of chair rail molding. The Russians who actually would attend conferences in that conference room, they were bilateral and trilateral meetings, so we had Russian diplomats and American diplomats talking about issues of mutual concern. Obviously, one or two of those Russian diplomats were intelligence officers under diplomatic cover. They were able to get a picture, get the color of that chair rail molding, went back to Moscow, Moscow duplicated it, were able to put a listening device with batteries on the inside, and then the Russians were able to come back into that conference room later on, take off the chair rail molding, and substitute the one with a listening device. How were they able to get time in that conference room to do that without anybody seeing them? That's still, the case is still an open case 20 years later. Huh. And there is, there is great debate. There is simply no questions that the Russians had unimpeded access to that room on at least two, if not three occasions, uh, that they had to be in there alone. So how do they get there? Why were they not escorted? Well, if they didn't have an escort policy, they could walk around. We have some ideas of how that may have happened. There are some in the intelligence community who believe the Russians did it all by themselves. There's the other 50%, including me, who believes they had help on the inside. You know, today, as we look at what happened in 2016 with the election, as we also look back at what took place in Estonia in 2007, and then what happened in Georgia 
2008, in Ukraine in 2014. Their uh, uh, plan to disrupt or to uh, co-opt U.S. uh, activities, the government, uh, and essentially other governments in other countries, there essentially were no limits to what they would uh, do to 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 get their to get to their goal. How do you look at what happened in '91 against the backdrop of what took place in 2016 and where we are now? People waking up again to think, oh, the Russians really aren't our friends. The government, that is. This is something we in the intelligence community have a hard time with: is reminding seniors that the intelligence services wake up every day and they have their primary enemies and their primary objectives and they get paid a good amount of money they're in very status positions and their job is to get their governments all the information that they can possibly get be it state department information on upcoming negotiations be it the military's next generation of weapons or what our politicians are thinking people forget that Oleg Kalugin a three-star general in the KGB, who's now here in the United States, he semi-defected, wrote in his book, the three major targets of the KGB, or now SVR, the White House, Congress, and the State Department. So that always leads, leads me to believe that those are those institutions that require some of the greatest safeguards. Now, I know the CIA and the DIA will say we are too, but... Just listen to what Oleg Kalugin says and put your resources there. And back to David Kilcullen, who says Russian tactics have evolved, but still have the same objectives in mind. And I want you to listen very carefully because I promised we would dig down into how Russia does what it does in its influence operations. And this is another stunning example of how their operational tactics have evolved. Well, I think the example that jumps out, and I'm sure that if you were to speak to Russians, they would deny they had anything to do with this, right? But that's kind of the whole point. Um, in an area called um, Kirkenes, which is 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle, a very long way from where any refugees are actually coming from, uh, in a space of about six weeks in the summer of 2015, 5,000 refugees crossed the border from Russia into Norway, mostly Syrian refugees, on bicycles, and the um, the border treaty between Russia and Norway says that it's illegal to cross the border on foot. And so these guys came across on children's bicycles. And I showed a photo of all these bi- bicycles that were were stacked up in a uh, near a church uh, in the area where they came across. Um, they came from a town on the other side of the border, where I doubt there was a hundred bicycles of that kind um, available. So there's at least strong circumstantial evidence that they were assisted in their crossing by some kind of Russian local law, national authorities, in part to uh, create a bandwidth problem for the guys trying to, to guard the border. That happened last year. This year we've seen similar events in Finland and a couple of other places in the, the same area in the Baltic states. And I think we have to recognise that the manipulation of mass population movement is becoming part of the repertoire for some of our adversaries, whether and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't single out the Russians. Actually, I think any state actor is going to be in a position to start manipulating that. But back to the Russian situation and even these others as well. It suggests that they have spent a lot of time thinking about how to uh, get around the the rules and the laws and the treaties. So it's not something that they 
decided yesterday or last week or last year to do. It's something they probably have been working on for a while. Yeah, there's there's an article that got a lot of play in the military world a couple of years ago by Valery Gerasimov, who's the Russian chief of staff. Um, and it's been described by some people as the Gerasimov doctrine. There's an active debate whether it's actually a real thing, right? Whether he, he was just giving a speech to a technical audience or whether it's real. But the people who believe that there's this idea of the Gerasimov doctrine also describe it as new generation warfare um, or non-linear warfare. And the idea is that what Gerasimov says in his, in his article is classical military means are no longer as important in warfare as traditionally non-military means. And he gives a series of examples. Economic, legal, humanitarian, which I think is an interesting choice. Um, environmental. And he talks about how um, you achieve manoeuvre across a much wider space than just military kinetic manoeuvre. And if you get blocked in your kinetic manoeuvre, you have other options to continue to achieve what you want to achieve. Um, or you can use the non-kinetic to shape kinetic. Now, actually, this is a common idea that goes back to Russian-Soviet thinking uh, 70 years ago. A guy called um, Mikhail Tukhachevsky invented this stuff in the, in the 20s. It was purged by Stalin in 1937, so it didn't kind of go very far in Russian theory, but um, there's a lot of very advanced Russian theory on how to do this stuff. And I, as I said in the presentation, there's a similar theory known as unrestricted warfare, which was popularised by two Chinese officers about 15 years ago. And you can see some of that. It, we don't think it's official doctrine, but you can see some of that playing out in the way that the Chinese have operated uh, in their approach. And again, this is not necessarily to critique the Russians or the Chinese. It's just to point out that our definition of warfare is much narrower than theirs. Mm. Uh, and we run the risk of uh, what I call being conceptually enveloped. Conceptually enveloped. That appears to be what happened with the 2016 presidential election. What you're listening to is a celebration that took place election night. But it wasn't in the U.S., it was in Russia. Vladimir Zirinovsky, an ultranationalist Russian politician and ally of Vladimir Putin, celebrated saying to Donald Trump's victory and to new internal and foreign U.S. policy and the speedy improvement of relations between the U.S. and Russia. And he said something that made the hair on the back of the necks of all intelligence officials in the U.S. no doubt stand on end. He made a reference to achieving a victory that they'd been seeking since the beginning of the Cold War. And there's little doubt about what he was referring to. Essentially, an attack on the U.S. And in our next episode, we'll get into exactly how they did it, the tools, the tactics, the people, right here on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Hey, everybody. Help my podcast stay free to download with minimal ads. Responses will help align the appropriate advertisers to the audience. This survey is short and completely anonymous. It takes no more than five minutes, and there are two easy ways to participate. Go to www.podcast1.com slash mysurvey or www.podcast1.com and click on the survey banner. If you filled out a survey in the past, thanks, but we still need you to do it again. You do all of us at Target USA and Podcast One a huge favor by filling it out. 
Thank you for supporting this program and taking time to complete the survey. Here at Podcast One, we love hearing from you. We read every tweet and comment you send our way. So don't miss your chance to take our summer listener survey. Just go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Or go to podcastone.com slash mysurvey. It only takes a few minutes and it gives you the opportunity to make a direct impact on your favorite shows. Tell us how you really feel so we can get to know you better. We value your thoughts and participation. So check out the survey at podcastone.com slash mysurvey. Or click on the survey banner on podcast one.com now stay tuned for the latest headlines from the associated press